welcome to season four of the Soccer Coaching Podcast, brought to you in association with our friends at Spawn. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Soft Coaching Podcast. I am delighted to give you a real Christmas treat for this episode. We've got Ben Bartlett from Fulham Football Club on with us today. Hey Ben, how are you doing? Hi Scott, thanks for having me on, good to see you. And good to see you too. As in with all our guests, uh, you are exceptionally busy. So first let me say thank you for making time available. You've been really accommodating to free yourself up to give us half an hour or so of your time today. Um, how are things? Things are going well, thank you. Yeah, looking forward to a Christmas break. So it's been a busy year. Do you get a break at Christmas? I, I don't know how it works in the football world in the academy system. Do you get a bit of a time off or is it, is it, is it relentless? We've got a little bit of a break, yeah. Okay. The under-18s have a game on Saturday, the under-23s have the last game on Monday. And then there's no formal game scheduled, I think, until the 5th of January after that. So there is a little bit of time to uh, take a breath and hopefully enjoy some Christmas time. Awesome. Well, a, a well-earned break. Yeah, I'm sure. Brilliant. Well, look, if it's OK, what we're going to do today, we'll have a, chat, a little chat about kind of you and your background and what it is you currently do. A bit about the book that I think came out yesterday, and what most of all, I think the theme of the, the episode is going to be around kind of the constraints that approach and like your your influence on that and your understanding of that and kind of how you think it can help in, in the world of coaching, particularly for maybe coaches like me that are out there, you know, part time coaches just helping and supporting like local grassroots players and how we can maybe adopt some of those principles to help our players out. So that, that's the plan anyway. So we'll see where the conversation takes us. But just to start, then Ben, for those that don't know you, um, and I'm going to start. First up from the beginning here, I'm, I've been a massive fan of yours, Ben, since the very beginning. Uh, like following what you've done, the work you've done, you've been a massive influence on on my coaching and therefore on the players that I've coached as well in a positive way. And I was saying before we hit record that when I started the podcast about three years ago, um, you were one of two key guests I really wanted on. You and Todd being were the two people I really wanted to get on. I had to be brave enough to come and ask you at some point, but I finally got the courage up and you were brave. You were kind enough to say yes straight away. So um, it's a real privilege for me. But for those that don't know your background and stuff, maybe you don't mind sharing a bit about your journey and what does your company do? Of course, yeah. Thanks for saying, Scott. I'm some uh, rare company to be in with Todd, so thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, fortunate to have been coaching for 25 plus years now. Um, started coaching at Colchester United back in the 1990s, uh, football in the community coach, coaching the boys and girls excellence programs. I worked there for 10 years and was really fortunate in terms of the sort of the breadth of experience that that type of job enabled me to, to gain. Um, You'd spend a lot of days, sort of seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve hours, actually on the grass coaching, coaching children that four and five year olds in a sports centre session who you literally are just toilet runs and tying shoelaces, right up to working with teenage and uh, and young adult players that are aspiring to play Premier League and international football. So hopefully those sort of experience give you the hopefully the breadth to be able to say you know you can keep four and five-year-olds running around for an hour and try and survive that kind of session, but also hopefully try and add some value to those that go on and do well. Yeah, fortunate after that to spend a couple of years at Chelsea just as they uh, began a full-time uh, women's programme, land some of the foundations for the hopeful uh, growth and development of both women's football at Chelsea and also women's football in England. And then uh, in 2007, commenced working at the Football Association just as they sort of started to take a shift towards taking more of an age appropriate, more of a youth focus, more of an individually responsive approach to coaching and coach development. Um, and was fortunate to spend 12 years there, left the organisation in 2019. And for the last uh, be three years in May now, um, have been fortunate to be employed ahead of coaching at Fulham. So uh, working there to support the coaches to try and stitch together their coaching approaches with the development needs of the players to try and support the players to go and have the most successful career they can. But hopefully develop them in a broadly holistic way. 
So you, you joined the film at an interesting time, obviously, because that's probably just around when the pandemic started kicking and doing and having its influence on things. Has that been a has it been an issue for you? If you managed to work around that and adapt like others have had to, or has it has it been a real inconvenience? Yeah, I mean, naturally, there's been inconveniences, but probably football has been nowhere near as inconvenienced as many other aspects of life. So we've certainly been fortunate in that sense. I think I probably had about ten months before the pandemic hit. And I guess in the early stages of the pandemic hitting, it was kind of working out how to support the players when you weren't actually able to support the players in the traditional ways that we'd all become accustomed to, to using. And I think over time, with some really skillful coaches and some really thoughtful approaches, we found additional ways to be able to maintain contact with the players, to provide a broad base of support as we could. And then that hopefully supported everybody when you know, we were physically able to return back to football practice. The, old, the older players, apart from the initial lockdown, were fortunate to be able to play pretty much through. We had some fairly tight restrictions about things we could and couldn't do, uh, but we were fortunate that the older players were pretty much able to be in training in a, uh, with, with some constraints attached to it, but largely um, to, to be uninterrupted and for the competition programme to continue as well. Uh, the schoolboys probably came back to something that resembled a full programme about March or April of this year. And Touchwood up until now, we've been largely uninterrupted. And over time, we've hopefully moved back towards something that resembles normality, although the last couple of weeks have obviously started to be affected yeah. again. Yeah. And, and the role of the front then, Ben, do you oversee the whole academy system from like entry level, like I guess, at week nine or so, or pre-academy up to the, the older ones? Is that is that your remit? Yeah, I'm responsible for the coaches and the sort of technical coaching programme. So that begins at under nines, where we sign the players. We do have a pre-academy programme. Uh, that's from under nines uh, through to under 23s. Um, and I'm really fortunate that we have like lead coaches that work across two age groups. We've got some hugely skilled, highly motivating people to, to work with. Um, so I'd like to be able to sit here and say that the quality of their coaching is because of the work that I do, but it's very much because of their own motivation. And I'm in many senses learning as much from them as they're possibly ever learning from me. Yeah, for sure. And maybe an unfair question. Do you have a preference, kind of an age or a, a, a phase that you like more than others? Or are you happy with anything? I, I like all of it. I probably find the 13s and the 14s kind of like a really nice age in the sense that there's a, still a degree of kind of innocence there um, and real sort of largely sort of honesty, earnest approach to trying to be good at football. The game's become tactical enough that it challenges you enough from a coaching perspective um, but you probably haven't got too much into those kind of mardy teenage years that I guess all of us have been through and have probably all coached through, which is still a good and interesting challenge, but certainly the 13s, 14s. And it's also nice that we have some high-skilled coaches working in our 18s and 23s. And the step that the, you see the players make from being an under-16 to being in the full-time programme as a scholarship, and you can see some of the real growth and, and flourishing that occurs through those ages, which is a really nice thing to be around, to see them effectively go from being boys to being young men uh, to making a commitment towards being professional football and really embracing all of the things that come with the full-time program like being in the gym and doing analysis sessions and you kind of really see that acceleration of growth and development through those years and during your time at the FA then Ben I started coaching really I guess back in 2000 about 11 so about 10 years ago and it felt like to me on the outside, there was a real sea change around kind of the FA's approach to coaching. The youth mods came in a little bit later on, which I loved. I did the old level one and level two, and then I did the new versions and there was a big difference there. Um, it, was that a case? Was there a bit of, I'm not going to say revolution, but saying evolution of coaching kind of theory in the FA? And what was your part in that or, or being involved in that at all? 
yeah, significant change. And much of it was guided by um, much of it was guided by Trevor Brookin, and there was some significant consultation with both the professional game and the grassroots game, probably around 2005, 2006, which was which the research that, that came as a consequence of that consultation largely guided the future, which was the game across the game from grassroots through to the professional game, spoke about the importance of being able to have more localised support for coaching and coach development, to have qualifications that were more guided by the age and experience of the players rather than kind of a standardised one-size-fits-all approach. And also for that content to perhaps become a bit broader than not, not dealing with the techniques and tactics of the game of football, but understanding the whole human experience, how human development works and how football plays a relatively significant part in bringing those things together. That sort of, in, in many senses, became the, the, the bearer of the Youth Award, of the Skills Programme, um, of uh, more coaches and coach educators being assessed, being supported in their own context, which hopefully started to take a shift away from 35 minutes to deliver a particular piece of work practically with a group of players that were typically the adults on the course, to enabling people to be able to build an understanding of what's going on in their own context and then be assessed against the degree to which they were responding to what was going on in their context. And I think the sea change is, is, is a really important message. And I guess we were also fortunate that it was probably almost like a perfect storm of the work that the Premier League were doing around EPPP, um, which had an enormous impact upon the academy system, the work that the FA were doing around coaching and coach development. And then a lot of that uh, sort of spawned the DNA work, which then started to have a significant impact upon both England youth and England senior teams. And I guess if any one of those things had happened in isolation, we may not necessarily have seen a lot of the growth and development and progress that I guess people would hopefully celebrate that we've seen in the English game in the last 10 to 15 years. And I guess you almost ended up with, uh, uh, hopefully it was really strategic, but almost like this perfect storm of all of these different strategic things from a collection of bodies pulling in principally similar directions, which has largely supported the development of the game in England. And you've been a big advocate for adopting a constraint-set approach to player development. I mean, that's kind of the first things I heard about, things you were saying kind of publicly, maybe I guess five, six, seven years ago, I would have said, maybe it's longer than that. Um, how did that come about? What, what, the understanding of that, was that something you had before you got into the FA and stuff? Or was that part of this whole thinking about how we could do things differently moving forward? Well, probably a little bit. Oh, I guess I'd never really known it as a constraint-led approach to coaching. I guess I tried to understand that the use of games was probably going to be a great opportunity for players to learn to play the game. And whilst I would certainly never say never around isolated, non-contextual training, I guess the general genuine belief was that players are more likely to adapt to the demands of the game through experiencing the demands of the game in a range of different ways. I was fortunate and uh, I guess motivated through a lot of the reading that then occurred to involved myself in a more formal um, sort of academic approach and, and, and embarked on a master's degree, which enabled the opportunity to really try and embed some of the things that I thought I understood from a practical perspective and really deepen my understanding from a theoretical perspective about where those things sat, how the um, research could possibly interlink, not just from a sporting perspective, but across a broader human development perspective. And I guess... You know, the FA were big drivers, as, as, have the, as have the league, the Premier League and the Football League been in terms of trying to lead people towards having a deeper understanding about why they do what they do, rather than necessarily just picking something off of the shelf and delivering it. And I think, you know, not to suggest that we modelled that, but trying to put in place living that yourself to demonstrate that you're committed to your, own, to your own learning, to understanding why you do what you do, and hopefully being able to share that whatever it is that you do is 
still a decision that you make, but hopefully it is un- underpinned by a whole load of other research around human development and around science that hopefully shapes why we do what we do. And I guess pr- pr- principally the, the sort of constraints-led approach to coaching largely just encourages coaches to take account of, I guess in Carl Newell's um, sort of triangular model, is that the, the individual, which we could from a footballing perspective see as the player, so understand who the player is, and not just them as a, a football player, who they are on the pitch, but the sort of nature of their personality, the physical characteristics, some of the experiences that they've been exposed to that have probably led to them being the person and the player that they are today. And the more deeply we can reference and get an understanding of that, probably the more likely we are to be able to respond to them appropriately. So that's the first part. The second part in Newell's model spoke about the task, but I guess for, for all of us as football coaches, we would just see the task as football. Uh, so principally you get the 17 laws of football, which define how you play, but also then as coaches will invariably do, there's different ways that we can constrain, challenge, organise particular practice to enable certain aspects of the game to perhaps to be more relevant and to be uh, for the players to have heightened exposure to those things and others. Um, and the third, the sort of top of the triangle is um, what Neil spoke about was environment was about environmental uh, constraints. And in those senses, you then consider what is it that the um, what is it that the player brings to the party? What is the task that football is challenging them with today? And then that's underpinned by the environmental conditions that those players and that task is challenging them with today. And the environmental conditions could be the pitch, it could be the weather, it could be the fans, um, it could be the amount of minutes that we're going to plan a game. There's a whole range of other things that in any given moment may challenge or may be fixed for a particular period of time. And I guess the principle being that whilst playbooks can be quite seductive, the suggestion is, is that any time the individual or the player playing the game of football changes, any time the nature of the task or the way that the game is playing out changes and or the environment that those players are playing that game of football play in changes, there's a good chance that the solution to the problem changes. So the typical view that if I'm passing it to you with the side of my foot, there is a perfect technique that everybody should be able to execute that is the same every single time is perhaps a little bit mistaken because the chances are that when it's you passing it to me, it may be different when it's me that's passing it to you. If there's someone in between us, if the pitch is a bit faster, a bit slower, if there's a bit more wind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the chances are that either in a subtly or a significant way, the solution to the problem will change based upon the person, the way the football's presenting itself and the environment that those two elements are contending with. When you made your move to Fulham from the FA, obviously you had these principles and beliefs in place. I hope it's not an unfair question. I've been in a position here, but I'll ask it. Feel free not to answer it if you don't want to. Um, I'm just thinking, you're so passionate about this approach and this way of doing things. When you moved into, I guess you move into an academy system, do you make sure you align those principles with where you're moving into or is it something you had to kind of work with once you got in there? Because I'm just thinking if, if you're in a place where they don't necessarily fully commit to that belief as well, then it could be a struggle for you. But actually, was it one of those things where actually you made sure that you were in, in sync with where you're moving on to next? Or was it a case you were just getting there and almost kind of sell the principles of this approach to, to, to the academy at Fulham? Probably a little bit of all of those things. I guess the, the, the big idea around a constraints that approach to coaching is that there are social cultural constraints which are the way that a particular environment functions in the same way that we should take account of the individuals that are in that environment. We also need to take account of the social cultural constraints, which Fulham as a club has got history going back into the 1800s as an academy. It's got history and a a real rich tradition of developing players that go on and play in ours and other people's first teams. So the last thing anybody would do if you're genuinely taking a constraint approach is to go in with a hammer and smash everything up and try and rebuild it in your own image. Um, 
I guess I was fortunate in the sense that I went into that club in my previous job within the Football Association and that the club had already committed long before my time to a more individualised, what they would call as a games-led, constraints-based approach to coaching and to training, which hopefully meant that in going in, hopefully you just had already had a nice platform that maybe you may be able to add some small value to, but you already knew that the practitioners and the, the thinkers in that building were already really aligning with those kind of principles. You've covered some of the detail around a constraints-led approach already, but if you don't mind, if we could take one step backwards, Ben, and I appreciate you're kind of well above well beyond this in your own journey but um i'm, I'm recognizing a lot of our listeners will be kind of you know part-time mums and dads out there you know doing one one training session a week in a game at the weekend they'll probably be familiar with the concepts of a games-based approach or constraints of approach would you be able to kind of again i hope it's not an unfair question but almost summarize what is a constraints of approach for like a novice like me that's just out there doing it as a part-time gig what is it and what would it like in practice yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk through the principles that kind of underpin the way that I try to embody a constraints-led approach, which is that the experience or the practice, the game, whatever it is that we're encouraging the players to engage in, we'll have the four Ds. So we'll have direction. So I'll be attacking a goal that you're defending and I'll be defending a goal that you're attacking. Uh, it will have definition and by definition, it means it will largely be organised on the area of the pitch that that type of activity is most likely to happen. So if we were doing some work on getting into wide areas, defending wide areas, attacking in wide areas, generating crosses, we'd probably put that in the final third of the pitch. And if it's a mini soccer pitch, if it's an 11 v 11 pitch, typically play the full width of the pitch, because then that enables you to experience the practice in the areas of the pitch and in the sort of shape of the area that you're more most likely to do it come game day. Uh, the third D is that the players will have decisions to make. So whilst I'd never say no to mannequins, the idea that I would pass to you, you'd always take a touch off of your back foot across three yards and then deliver the same cross. What we try to uh, 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 enable and have representation of is your capacity to be able to practice crossing in a range of different ways. So that even though you've got a repetition of crossing, you're making decisions about the type of cross to deliver, about the weight to put on the pass, about the movement that might be going in the box from the attackers and the defenders, which hopefully means that you've got some sort of thought about what you're doing rather than just arbitrarily repeating the same technique over and over again. And the fourth is that those decisions present themselves in different ways. And the difference might be that for five minutes, I might play matched up against you. And then for another five minutes, I might play, play matched up against someone that's very different from you. And that means that even though I may be principally in the same part of the pitch, repeating similar things, if you're really quick and the next person is less quick and tighter and more physical, it may be that the, the decisions that I'm making are challenged in different ways as a consequence of the nature of the opponent. So it will have direction. It will be defined in the air of the pitch. It's most likely to happen. The players will have decisions to make and that those decisions will hopefully be presenting themselves in a range of different ways. Now, underneath that, I then work from two aspects, which is the design of the environment and the demands that we place on the players. And the design is probably the kind of more implicit sort of architecture that you may build the session around, which might be things like pitch size, how we organise the shape of the players to maybe represent some of the systems that the boys or the girls will play and come the weekend, and any of the parameters that we may lay out on the pitch, such as organising the pitch into traditional um, horizontal thirds or vertical thirds or a halfway line. Just some things that either may act to restrict people to prevent defenders, for example, from leaving the defensive third if you want them to provide the opportunity for the midfielders to have more of a ball. But my preference would be that they act as guidelines that so maybe you challenge a defender to try to transfer any passes from the deep third to the midfield third on one touch, which just provides a reference point in the use of the parameters to encourage certain actions more than others. The design stuff can often be quite implicit in things like playing on a small pitch or hopefully just being real pressure 
for the quality of your techniques, for your touch and your release skills, but also develop the agility of movement when you haven't got a lot of space to manipulate your body through. Second aspect will be the demands that we place on it, which may be the more sort of explicit conditions, challenges, constraints that a coach and all the players may agree or impose upon the practice, which may be things like you know, the traditional view about um, must have one touch. Yeah. Um, although typically in using those kind of challenges, I would try to leave the player to more than one decision. So it'd be unlikely and often rare that I would say anybody must be on one touch. But we may use conditions like if you're moving the ball from third to third, try and do it on one touch. Or if you're a centre forward and you want them to practice receiving and turning, any backwards passes must be off more than one touch. So hopefully it's just to a centre forward, hold the ball up, wait for people to support. Or if you want to play one touch, spin it around the corner and play forward because it's not a backward pass. So what you may do is constrain people away from certain choices. So in that example, the centre forward can't set one back one touch, but that still enables them a whole plethora of other choices that they may want to select as a consequence of the situation that they find themselves in. So the design is the sort of architecture of the session and the demand is almost like the furniture that we furnish the architecture with. One of the challenges sometimes I get when I'm out looking at coaches and trying to help where I can is our players aren't quite technically ready for that kind of games-based approach yet. We've got to work on some fundamentals first before we get there. Is that a fair argument or would you still be saying actually, you know what, we should probably be looking at a constraint-set approach and still using the game as best much as we can to develop those kind of basic technical abilities and not to worry too much about um, kind of, I guess, uh, fine-tuning some of that technical stuff before we get into games? Yeah, probably a range of different answers to that. I guess I would never say to anybody, if you feel there's a benefit in doing more technique unopposed repetitive practice because it's going to build confidence and belief both in the coach's capacity to influence the players and in the player's capacity to deal with the ball then absolutely use it because I don't know that there's any perfect science that says if you if someone learns to do something in this way that is better than do it in another way but in the first instance I'd probably start with the reasons that the players come to practice if one of the reasons that the players come to practice is because they enjoy playing football I'd be careful about the amount of time that you spend doing stuff that isn't football if your players come intentionally because they want to get better at football and they really want some input from the coach and some real focus on technical practice, it may be that you build in a greater diet of that type of practice into their experience. But I guess as with most things, kind of like the variety would probably be the key bit. And I like the, the coaching approach that's, I guess, been titled whole part whole, which goes back a number of decades. It certainly isn't novel where maybe you would start with the game and enable the players the opportunity to play the fully unfettered or maybe a slightly conditioned game to see how they're getting on and then maybe spend a period of time regressing it to something that is less like the game to be able to give them an opportunity to repeat certain techniques, to build that confidence, to refine the contacts with the ball before you then put them back into the game and see the degree to which that sort of unopposed, less game-like practice has influenced the way that they play in the game. I think the final thing to add would be if, you, if, you, if you're part of a team and they're playing fixtures on a Saturday or a Sunday, there's a games-based approach already, right, which is like it's happening at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And as long as the adults can learn to behave appropriately, we can see that as just an extension of the training programme, which is here's an opportunity to play 5v5, 7v7, 9v9, 11v11, whatever format, and use that as an additional learning tool alongside the training programme. And obviously you've done this for a while. You've been around different levels and different environments. Uh, the benefits seem obvious, but it, I don't want to assume anything. So from you, how have you seen how this has played out in practice with the players that have adopted this kind of approach? I mean, you might have to think back maybe to your early days of doing this and the changes that happened then. But, you know, what, what are the kind of, I guess, the, the returns on the investment of taking this approach to using in the players that have gone under that development process? Yeah, this, this is undoubtedly going to be laced with my own bias. <laughs> yeah. um, it's so difficult for it to not be. And I guess I'm really fortunate that 
I look at certainly five or six of the practitioners in my current environment and the sophistication with which they're building games and practices that are relative to both the way that it's been agreed that the team are going to play and to meet the individual needs of the players and the way in which they share and communicate that with the players genuinely engenders a real buy-in from the players about an understanding of how we're learning to play as a team and that even though I guess development is probably an individual pursuit, it is nested within a team game and I guess finding that healthy reciprocity between the way that we want the team to play and the way we want to support the development of the individuals. And when you see practices that blend what the individual needs are with the overall team um, demands and you see that delivered through games with some real sophistication and thought and it's not sophistication that the players have got to spend hours and hours understanding. The sophistication has been put in such a way that it plays out really cleanly and really smoothly for the players. What you genuinely see is a capacity for the players to play with intensity and purpose and to practice many of the game elements, not just the football ones, but the physical ones, the psychological ones and the social ones in an environment that is just like the game. Yeah. And I guess if transfer is a thing, transfer from what occurs in training to, to what occurs on a game day, the more that those training experiences take account of who the individual is and what they need, take account of the way that that team's learning to play. And the players can see that even in their mind's eye transfer into the performance come the weekend. That provides a really sound platform for a sense of belief and a sense of growth and development. How difficult is it for coaches, Ben, when they adopt a constraint-set approach? Because, again, one of the criticisms that you sometimes hear is, oh, it's just a case of throwing a ball in and letting the players play and you're not really coaching. And I'm, I'm categorically against that view. I think actually in some ways it's a much harder challenge because you've got to get your coaching elements in, in a game, which can be more challenging than doing something maybe more repetitive, you know, where you can see things easy to break it down a little bit. Do you think that's the case? Does it require maybe even a heightened skill set of coaching rather than less skill coaching? Is that a misunderstanding about the constraints that approach if it's just about throwing a ball in? Yeah, um, a constraints that approach is, is just throwing a ball in and letting the game be the teacher. And at times, if we make that decision, that may not be a bad thing. And certainly, sort of, I guess, the idea that the coach is the person that provides the constraints, that's not not true, but the players will be constrained every single time they play football. If they go and play at playtime in their primary school on the playground with their mates, whilst I appreciate the school have organised for them to be there and break times happens at 10.15, so there is some sense of adult intervention, the kids are organising that themselves. They're constrained by the environment that they're playing in and on. They're constrained by the people that they're playing with. My experience of playground football is they're probably constrained by the nature of the goals and the ball that they're playing with. Those things are all constraints, uh, regardless of whether or not the coach feels they've consciously and deliberately done something or not. I think those kind of examples, assuming the kids have got enough opportunity and time to play football, can probably be coupled with more intentional examples where we do put conditions on, where we do more formally organise the players and challenge them accordingly. And there probably is a, a, a really important skill set that comes with that, such as understanding the game of football, maybe understanding the individuals, and then maybe having an understanding about how to construct practice that blends those two aspects. But I think all of us can just you know, pick something even if we don't have deep understanding, just pick something, pick an arbitrary condition and start with that. And after 10 minutes, just watch and see how it's going. And there is no better, you know, feedback's a gift anyway, but there are no better people to give you feedback than the players themselves. Yeah. And if it looks like the game, chances are they haven't got to spend hours learning the practice because they watch the game probably regularly on the television. They play it in it hopefully every day, but certainly once or twice a week which means they haven't got to think too much about it. And then that provides us with the opportunity to ask them to add some conditions to it and hopefully build some skill over time. 
And I guess fundamentally, the more that we can set practice up like that and coaches can take a step back and watch what's going on, observe things, see things, probably that was going to give us the cognitive bandwidth in our mind to be able to look at what's going on and then make conscious decisions. Otherwise, I think sometimes when coaches are right on top of the practice, they're driving it, they're having to guide the practice to ensure the players understand it. It soaks up a lot of our energy and a lot of our capacity to genuinely observe and notice stuff, which sometimes mean that our coaching can't develop and become more sophisticated because we're hot-housing ourselves with worrying about the session design. Do you ever have players that come into Fulham and have maybe gone for a slightly more traditional background so they get to you and they're actually quite surprised by this approach and they get there and maybe it takes some time to adjust you mentioned at the beginning about experience being a big part of the, the you know the, the players makeup and it is i think you look at technical ability sometimes and the physical side but you don't you don't know the experience until you you get to know the player a bit more do you ever get that or do players come in and just kind of like they run with it straight away yeah probably probably both i guess typically players like games and increasingly players like games where they're not being stopped and told what to do in front of their peers however you know there's this this sort of uh, I guess over time, this more individualised approach has led to a lot of players liking individual attention and sort of the growth of one-to-one coaching. And that's just not from a football perspective, but one-to-one strength and conditioning coaching, one-to-one individual life coaches, one-to-one technique coaches. And I think it's important to recognise that even if we don't necessarily see loads and loads of game growth in terms of repeating those practices, it would definitely generate you buy-in if you can spend 10, 15 minutes with some of the players repeating stuff. And maybe we go, maybe they're not getting loads of game learning from that, but we're deepening our relationship. We're building the confidence and a belief in them. And if that helps them to perform on the Saturday or the Sunday, that can't not work. It's like the placebo effect, right? It's like science may tell us it doesn't work. But if the player thinks it works, who's right? Yeah. And do you ever do sessions that focus on, say, behaviours or that psychological side? So I, I totally buy into the fact that this is a part of it and it's in there anyway. You can't take it out. It's going to be in there, whatever constraint you put into a game. Um, but would you have a constraint that maybe just focuses, say, on a desire to compete or on resilience or, or you know, communication or confidence? Would you, was that something that you would in, like look at separately? Or would that be just embedded in part of a wider practice? I'd probably consider it separately, but I would probably never separate it from anything else that's going on. And I think the same as like same as we may put a condition on that might lean people towards defending in a particular way or crossing in a particular way or passing in a particular way. You may consider a condition that is going to drive a heightened level of competition or a heightened level of dealing with difficulty or a heightened level of social interaction with your peers, whatever those things are. I'd just be really careful about separating it from something else and say today we're working in the psych corner. And I understand why the four corner, the, the four corner model developed in the way that it did because it enabled coaches to consider human development from a broader perspective. I think the risk with that and the way that model has evolved is that people are like, right today I'm working in the psych corner and you're like, oh, no, no, today you're working and supporting those players to learn football. And the psychology, the social, the technical, the tactical and the physical will always be inherent elements of that. The more we can think about how those bits interrelate and the things that we do and the consequence that has on the things that the players do, probably the better. About, I think, two weeks ago or so now, maybe three weeks ago, I, I pre-ordered your book, which I believe is going to come to me anytime soon. Signed, I hope. It was a part of the, the, the pre-order, I believe. Um, but I'm waiting for it. It's my, my Christmas present to myself. Um, would you mind telling us a bit about how the book came about, who it's for, what's in it, as much as you want to share really around, around that, if that's okay? Of course, yeah. Um, I understand from some of the messages that I have that it started landing on people's doormats today. Um, Mine better come today then. <laughs> they are all, they are all. They are all signed. I think. I think the postman's got to get up that enormous drive and through the gates of your enormous house. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I'm in the West Wing today. You should be able to find me. I'm near the. I'm near the door. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I was, I was fortunate in the sense that uh, I was approached by a publisher in January of this year um, who is involved with Soccer Coach Weekly, Elite Soccer. He's got a range of publications that he oversees and a number of people that are responsible for those publications who had had published a number of books going back a number of years, but had certainly not done anything in the sort of last maybe 10 years, perhaps, and said um, an article that I'd written for Elite Soccer, which had largely been on a, a constraints-led approach, but also supporting coaches to use a collection of ingredients and principles to build their own practice rather than providing them with the recipe of this is what the practice should be, and that he thought there was space in the market for a book that may be built upon those principles and went into greater depth. It took me by surprise a little bit and my feedback to him was I don't know that I've got enough stuff to put into a book uh, and he skillfully sort of talked me through his vision for the book and the type of things that we could do and we sort of went on a journey probably up until about May or June of writing the content and stitching it together to try to piece it together in such a way that it would be coherent for someone to pick up and read and I guess the, the sort of balance in my mind was not providing a practice book that says turn to page 12 and there's the practice on finishing uh, and not because people don't need those kind of recipes, but that, because that's almost at odds with a constraint-led approach. And what we sought to do is to kind of look at principles. So there's five chapters within the book. The first chapter talks about environment design and recognising that the coach, the parents, the players have a responsibility and an opportunity to design, sorry, to design environments that enable people to learn to play football in a way that aligns with the things that are important to them and their community. The second chapter talks about learning which seeks to build on the environment design that if we can attend to the cares and the characteristics of the individual people and their community, we've probably got a better opportunity to support and engender a learning experience that people feel is a genuine representation of them rather than the kind of top-down traditional curriculum that says on Monday you're going to learn this and on Friday you're going to learn this and at the end of the six weeks we're going to test you to see what you've remembered. So the first chapter talks about um, environment design, the second chapter talks about learning and the second chapter goes into greater depth then about how coaches may be able to design environments and experiences that support learning and using some of those principles, some of those ingredients that coaches may be able to blend together infinitely to design experiences as a representation of the things that are important to them. The third chapter then looks from a coach development perspective at how those principles of environment design and learning can really be blended to support coach development alongside the player's development so that we don't necessarily end up with coach education or a coach development program that sits in an aside from the players development but that very much the development of the coaches is nested inside the development of the players. Chapter four then looks at a way in which we can perhaps eschew the traditional way that a curriculum is built and build a more um, uh, build something that's more of an ecosystem more of an environmentally ever-changing process of support and development that moves with the players and the environment rather than fixes them to certain things enables coaches to be able to respond to the way that the people in their care change over time. And the fifth chapter just looks to draw together a lot of the principles. So, yeah, the, 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 the book landing on your mat should be signed. Um, and that was, whilst a, a really nice intention from the publisher, what I didn't expect to have to do was to stand at a table and sign 350 <laughs> books in a couple of hours. Um, so if you have the one that got to 340, if you start to see the writing looking a little bit squiffy, that's because my eyes and my pen were going by then. <laughs> I know which one I got. You didn't get your daughter signed them for you then? You did them all yourself? You didn't cheat? <laughs> Sadly not, although she had an idea about maybe using a squash spider and put it in, put it in between the pages, but I'm not sure that would have helped the process. <laughs> and, and obviously writing books, and, is that your first book you did? Because I'm surprised it's your first book. Is it your first book? 
It is the, yeah. the first. I can't like to say it's be the only book, Scott. <laughs> well, that was my next question. Well, yeah, like, how was the process? I mean, I, I guess it's challenging. Well, not only was the process, but what did it change anything? Thinking it through in that detail, where you've got to try and make someone else understand who's reading words. Did it change things for you in any way, or did it clarify certain things? Did it make you question stuff going through that process? Yeah, all of those things. And like from a personal learning perspective, it's probably been one of the hardest, but probably one of the most powerful things that I've ever had the opportunity to do that without that opportunity, it enabled you to re-engage with a lot of the research that you've looked at over time. So yeah, that enabled me to re-engage with a lot of the research that I guess I'd, I'd been able to connect with whilst I was doing my master's degree that informed some of my thinking. And I guess also one of the things that we in, in continually encourage coaches to do both in my previous job at the FA and it's certainly extended into the role at Fulham is for the coaches to be able to articulate what they're doing, when they're doing it and why they're doing it to try and deepen their own understanding and to build their own self-awareness about the decisions that they're making. And this process has definitely helped me to generate deeper personal clarity around the things that I think are important and how that plays out. Um, writing it alongside doing, you know, anybody that works in football and anybody that works in academy football knows it is six days a week minimum it's usually 50, 60, 70. And I'm sure there are many people out there that do many more hours than I do within academy football. But finding the opportunity to be able to do that at five o'clock in the morning and at 10 o'clock at night was a real challenge, but actually probably was a really nice opportunity in the sense that I very rarely sat down for an extended period of time and felt a need to write a thousand words or 2,000 words. It was, there's an opportunity there. And because at the same time I was practicing coaching and coach development, you're also generating experience whilst you're going through the process of trying to put pen to paper which is a really nice combination which has hopefully led to something that people can see value in and can at least hopefully coherently navigate from front to back well congratulations for doing it i can imagine it was no mean feat and i, I generally can't wait to get the book and look through it and stuff you're probably lucky i didn't have it before i spoke to you today because i probably have a three-hour podcast asking loads of questions so um but i can't wait to have a good read over, over christmas i'm sure i'll learn loads so well done for putting it together and i'm sure coaches that pick it up will benefit loads from having a read through it from your experience are there and maybe um, maybe the academy phase is, um, a system is one of these places, but certainly outside in grassroots space, is there any kind of common mistakes that coaches make if they try and adopt a constraint set approach that you've seen from your experience? Things you kind of say, "Oh, I can see where they're getting that wrong, and they shouldn't do that." Yeah, I'd probably be really reluctant to say that people are making mistakes or they're getting it wrong. I guess what can typically happen is in the need for coaches to typically have control of stuff. I know I can still be guilty of having too, too many conditions going on, too many things going on to try and restrict people's movements such that I get what I think I want. And the risk in doing that is that it actually removes a lot of the reality from the game and can often frustrate the players because many of the choices that they might want to make are taken out of their hands by the arbitrary conditions that are placed on the practice. And I'd probably start with relatively loose examples, watch what goes on, and then make judgments about the degree to which I want to add additional conditions and constraints either to individuals or to the whole of the practice to afford players greater opportunity to repeat stuff. Because as you alluded to earlier, the risk is if you do just play the normal game, within the laws of the game, you've got a multitude of hundreds of thousands of different decisions that you can make at any moment in time. That can be great, but the risk is, is that our personal constitution will be contending with that, which means if I've got a right foot bias, if there are no additional conditions on it, chances are that I'll just revert to doing what my characteristics and my constitution currently enables me to do. And it may then be that using in agreement with the players and them understanding why we're doing it, using additional conditions to enable them to try and search for and find solutions that perhaps aren't already in their armory. 
or at least to try and practice stuff that perhaps they're not skilled at yet. And do you have a favourite kind of practice or constraint that you like your go-to one if you if you have to turn? I know it obviously depends probably on the the age group and the ability and stuff like that. But is there something you think actually I've done that one and that works quite well? Yeah, that, I mean I, I can't claim it unfortunately, but there's one that one of the coaches at our club did a couple of seasons ago now, which has stuck in my mind for some time. And it was a really nicely designed big pitch game because he knew it was going to give them the physical demand that these particular group of boys needed to help them to prepare for the next stage of their development. Uh, he would typically play for longer periods than a lot of coaches are often comfortable to do. A lot of coaches will go for sort of three, four, five, six minute blocks. This coach would go for 12, 14, 16, 20 minute blocks of practice and know that the players would be physically challenged throughout that practice, as well as being able to continue to repeat playing football through that physical um, fatigue. And he put a really nice condition on, which linked to the fact that that, that team had a tendency to have lots of possession, but not necessarily capitalise on the use of that possession to gain control of the game. And he put a condition on that said, if you score in the first two minutes or the last two minutes of the game, you get double goals, which is a really nice condition that says, be intense early from a physical perspective, try and grab control of the game, sorry, score early. And if you score early, particularly in the way that that team played, it probably meant you had a great balance of control of the game because the opposition would need to come after you. Similarly, if you could score in the last two minutes of the game, it challenged the players to physically really repeat and stay with the game late on. But also know that certainly if the game's competitive, if you score in the last two minutes of the game, chances are it could be quite critical to the success of the game, either in pulling back from a defeat to draw or to take the lead. And just helping players to recognise that there's a physical aspect to that. There's a game competition element to that. But like you alluded to earlier, there's significant psychological and social elements that those kind of conditions will bring out in the players. And they're ones that would wear the GPS system, the data tracking information, and you saw a significant spike in their physical output in terms of metres per minute in the first two minutes and the last two minutes of the game. With just that traditional idea that in my very average non-league career, start strong, first five minutes, get after the ball, finish strong to try and ensure that you see the game out. Just a really clever way of conditioning the players to see the value in those key moments of the game. Love it. It sounds so simple, doesn't it, these things, but they work so well. I remember one of the first things I did a few years back now, coaching Littler, so I think there was, they were under six at the time, and you get the usual thing where people say, oh, the, the, they always bunch around the ball, you know? So we just put in the thing where you've got all the boys' headbands, and it was, you've got to get all, you can score as many goals as you want to score, but it's when all your teammates have got headband on, you're going to win. So suddenly now they're sharing the ball, they're passing, they're getting different positions, they're changing where they're playing and stuff. And, and that was it and it fixed them we never had to worry about a bunch around the ball again just by giving headbands and putting in one little condition for a bunch of five and six year olds you know and it fixed everything and it can be so simple right the little things can have such a big impact and moving towards the solution is something that the kids actually find fun and engaging yeah. as opposed to the adults continually saying spread out and move away from each other yeah. it's almost as if the challenge engenders the behavior that you want and the kids find it an enjoyable experience on the journey together exactly that yeah so again being the it would be unfair for me to ask a question to you. Where do you think coaching may be heading in the next five to 10 years now? You, you've written your book. You, you know, what you're the front of all knowledge as far as I'm concerned. I'm keen to know where you think things may be progressing to. I think it's interesting in the sense that like from a coach development perspective, a lot of coach education has gone online. And I think that will probably stay a relatively significant part of the coach education landscape. But I do worry a little bit that it's very difficult to understand what somebody needs and to attend to it through a computer screen. And I worry a little bit that if we're not careful too much of that online interaction will just become standardised content offers to a large group of people, which whilst isn't, has not, doesn't have not, not have any value, is at risk of not necessarily attending to the social nature of coaching. 
And I think many of the kind of individual interactions that I know I had both through my own um, program of, of going on coach education courses and through the time that I spent supporting others through that same journey, many of the social connections that you made with people were as powerful as any of the content that anybody shared. And I think we need to be really careful about, you know, whether, whether it's been governed by the pandemic or whether it's just technology taking us forward to be really careful about losing some of that kind of human social connection that coaches crave and that also should be encouraged through the interaction with their players. I think those things are, are, are really critical. I think the, from a sort of uh, a player development perspective, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where the sort of generation of academy footballers goes in the next 10 years. Uh, I think there's a real exciting opportunity if you look at the way that the England team have both, uh, both been selected and has performed in recent years to hopefully say there could be a, a, a really strong pool of talent which could continue to take England to the front of the game. And I think if those young players do that, take coaches out of the equation, I think those players have really got a strong opportunity to be able to set the tone for what future players will look like. And whether it's your Sackers, whether it's your Bellinghams, whether it's your Fodens, you know, pick your poison in terms of the players that you like. If they're the players that the kids are looking up to and they're the players that are driving the type of experience and the player that they want to be, then that's going to be more powerful than any session you and I can ever yeah, put on. For sure. Yeah. Brilliant. And Ben, we ask all our guests this question. If there was one thing you could change about the world of coaching or football, what might that be? I suppose I'd, I'd like to perhaps see less ego guided from some coaches some of the time. Although I think that's quite a difficult thing because many coaches have got their own aspirations and their own drivers. And I think if you took that away, it may be that you wouldn't see such a powerful, real focus on player development because the coaches are really invested in their own development and supporting the players through that process. I do worry sometimes, though, that the ego of the coach perhaps overtakes the needs of the players. But then at the same time, as with every other condition or constraint, that's just another constraint to get towards. And in many cases, over time, coaches having a deeper understanding of themselves, learning about how to perhaps quell that ego a little bit, to dampen it down a little bit and pursue other things that are perhaps more relevant to the players is a good challenge and a learning process for people to go through themselves. Yeah, good point. I'd encourage people to maybe video themselves at training sessions and games because that's the big eye opener when you watch yourself back and think, you know, I, didn't I was doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, very much so. And your aspirations, what's the plans for you for obviously it's the early days in Fulham? I'm sure you're still making your mark. I, when I heard you moved across, I thought they were so lucky to have you there and I'm sure that's the case and you, you're, you're making your impact there. But what's your plans for the next five years or so? I've been asked that a few times. I'm not really sure I have any other than I guess sort of a lot of my aspirations have been to try to be in an environment which has got really good people in it and is committed to a worthy goal. And at the moment, I think I seem to have found that. Um, and I, you probably want to see what kind of distance that goes. Some people would say it's because I'm risk averse and quite boring. But a lot of the jobs I've been in, I was at Colchester for 10 years. I was at the FA for 12 years. But I guess principally, if we believe in the value of development, if you jump in jobs every one or two years, you're probably never really seeing through your developmental principles. And also, similarly, I'd like to see, you know, there's some hugely exciting and, and, and skilled coaches at Fulham. It'd be really nice to see them go the distance and just to stand in the shadows and watch to see where they can go and the things that they can do in the game, which through no contribution of mine is certainly inspiring and motivating to observe as well. I always think it's a good answer when someone says, you know, what, I'm quite happy where I am right now. I'm not really thinking too much about the next five years because it shows you're content where you are and you've probably got enough challenges there to work on and, and, and invest your time into without thinking too far ahead. So that's always a good sign, I think. Ben, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your time. You've covered it so well. Um, like I said, it's a real privilege for me to have you on the podcast. It's been an ambition since we started three years ago. I can't wait to read the book. Um, if listeners want to find out more about you, the work you're doing, or 
get hold of the book? What's the best way of going about that? Yeah, Soccer Coach Weekly. I think it's soccercoachweekly.net. Um, the, the book can be purchased there and an e-book can be purchased. The print uh, book can be, can be published. I'm on social media on Twitter at Ben Bartz. And yeah, if anybody's ever got any questions or anything that they're, they're interested in discussing, I'm hugely welcome to the interaction. Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. We'll put all the links in the show notes so people can get hold of that nice and easy. Thanks for your time today. Enjoy your well-earned Christmas break. <laughs> and um, when you write the second book, will you come back on again? Absolutely not. <laughs> I thought you might say that. <laughs> not because I won't come back on because there's not likely to be a second book. So. We'll see. We'll see. Ben, thanks so much. So have a great Christmas and New Year. Appreciate your time. Um, and hopefully we'll catch up at some point in the New Year. And you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you in association with our friends at Spond. Spond takes all the hassle out of organising any group event and is ideal for coaches and managers when dealing with the administration of their teams. We've been using the Spond app for about two seasons now and it's been a superb help in removing the hurdles so we can spend more time doing the things that we love. Spond works across any device and allows you to share files, create polls, schedules, manage events, attendances, make payments, send group and private messages and it even syncs across with your calendar. For more information on Spond or this episode, please see the show notes. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode.